So Acts 2, um, it's the birth of the church. If you were ever involved in the birth of one of your children, if you were in that room, uh, especially if it was your first, was it at all unexpected? Did things happen that you did not plan? Most likely. It's, it's, uh, it's, no, nothing can prepare you for being in the room when your child is birthed. It's the best of times and it's the worst of times. It's both, right? You're just like, ah, what's going on? And then, wow, a baby, all right. Like, it's, it's hard, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. So um, we have the birth of the church. It's kind of like that. There's, ah, mm, okay, all right? So my hope to, to try to do tonight is a little bit of theology, a little bit of philosophy based on that theology, a little bit of methodology, what Edgewater does, and then just a little bit of me, kind of where I sit on this. So that's my hope. Verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Fascinating. So if you're new, Jesus, death, burial, resurrection, appears to his disciples, preaches to them, shares with them for 40 days. They go in the upper room, technically for seven days, because it's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, grave for three days, 40 days, there's seven days left. So a week in the upper room, um, they're praying. They, they don't have any expectation. They don't even know what they're praying for. They're not, no one thought in their mind, this is what's gonna happen, verses one through four, right? They're just obeying what Jesus had said and they're praying. And then you have Pentecost. So just some things to think about. Timing, we did a Sunday message on this. Uh, to me, Pentecost is linking this story, what happens here with Exodus 19, that God had actually invited his people into his presence back in 1400 BC, come up, join with me. The people would not come. They were afraid of the fire on the mountain. It, it was fearful to them. So they didn't. And so God says, fine, I'll accommodate you in your fear. I'll build this tent and we can meet in this tent. And what you see with God is he is always meeting his people where they are at to bring them to where he is, right? And he does this ultimately as Jesus, God the Son, meets us where we're at. Why? Because I want to bring you with me. That is John chapter 14, right? So he accommodates, no, no problem. And then 1400 years later, it's the time. It's the right time now for... Uh, this communion that God has always wanted from Genesis 1 to Revelation 20, it's time for this communion to take place. We're, we're now a community, right? And it's more 
than I think they could have ever anticipated. And God, I believe, is always wanting to give you and me more than we could have ever anticipated. So yesterday I was walking around our property where they're building a bunch of stuff and I'm just kind of looking at this, this building. And if you were to ask me a couple of years ago, I would have been happy with one of the price chopper where, you know, those, they, they both went out, whatever they were. They're like price chopper and there are a ton of different things. Raised Century Market for a while and two of them went out of business. One's now a gym, but there's still one uptown that's like for sale. I'm like, I'd have been totally happy with one of those places. And then looking at what we're going to be building, I'm just blown away, blown away by what God has for us. I haven't stopped smiling. So I probably won't stop smiling. God wants to do more. And often there is a waiting period that has to take place for the right time for God to do more. If you read the Bible, you'll see that promised kids were very often given to parents that had to wait. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter one, right? A promised child, Samuel is given after a long period of waiting and Samuel is a stallion. New Testament, Zechariah in the temple ministering. Angel appears, he's 140 years old and the angel's like, hey bro, heard your prayer, you're having a kid. Right? And Zachariah's like, what? Dude, I stopped praying that 90 years ago. We ain't having a kid. All right, because you said that, you won't speak another word until he's born. All right, right? That's essentially what it says. Matt Heverly version. And John the Baptist is born, this incredible forerunner for Jesus, right? Jesus would say of John the Baptist, he is the greatest of the Old Testament. People born of women, like, wow, what? And they had to wait. So never settle for an Ishmael when God wants to give you an Isaac. Sometimes you've got to wait. It's been said rightly, hurry is not of the devil, hurry is the devil. They think God wants us to wait and Satan's always trying to push us into hurrying and making these mistakes. How many mistakes have you made because you're rushing something? Man, I stopped keeping a list, right? Marriage. Man, often people rush into marriage and I get it from a girl's standpoint, like, hey, your biological clock is clicking. There's a, there's a shelf life for your eggs. I get all that, right? At some level. I mean, I can't get it all, but part of it, but be careful. And this is what I tell my daughters. There is something worse than being single. And I meet them in my office quite often. Be so careful. Take your time. So there's a timing here. There's also a unity it says, verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All 120. I've wondered if there should have been 121. If there's some guy that got invited and he should have been here, he's like, ah, you know, I can't really make it. Can you imagine missing out on this? What, how would you kick yourself? Still, this stuff happens. So if you remember... Uh, a number of years ago, Oprah Winfrey on her show, she invited all these people and then she gave everyone a G6 car. Do you remember that at Pontiac? It was like 2004. But here's what you may not have known. She sent out a bunch of like, she sent out, she had 276 cars to give away. So she sent out 276 invitations and there were people that were like, you know, I just can't make it. Yeah, totally. Could you imagine me with those people? You know, I'm busy. I'm getting my hair done that day. Can't make it. <laughs> you just missed out on a free car. 
there's a blessing in being there. Christianity is not a correspondence course. You can't do it from afar. You have to be part of it. You have to be in it. You have to be around it. You have to rub shoulders with it. It's the only way. You have to be there. They were there, all of them. They stayed there for a week. And then this happens. And notice it's all of the 120 get the spirit. Not just the A apostles, but the B apostles and the C apostles and the Z apostles. Every single person that was there receives the same spirit. Now this is revolutionary because up to this point, God's spirit was given to like certain individuals, Joseph, Bezalel, Elijah, Ezekiel. It wasn't broad, but here every single one gets the same spirit because the New Testament is based on grace. How great you are, how great he is. Not what you've done, but what he's done. And that's God's plan. You can read verse 17. When Peter begins to preach, he quotes this old prophet named Joel. And he says, this is what God's always wanted, to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Not like it's been before where it's this person and that person. He wants everyone to have his spirit. And notice how it comes. The physical descriptions of God's spirit at Pentecost. It's wind and it's fire. What does wind do? If you have a sailboat, what does wind do? Man, it gets you where you wanna go. If you have a kite, what does wind do? It animates that kite, right? The kite's on the ground doing nothing until there's wind and then, whoo, can you control the wind? So a great number of years ago, I'm over at the coast, beautiful day in Brookings, Harris Beach. I bought this kite at Fred Meyer. I set it up. Uh, I hooked it onto my fishing rod. And I had a good fishing rod. It was a lime and glass rod, $150 rod, $100 level wine reel. And I had at least 200 yards of line on that thing. So I hooked this kite up to it and I just started letting this kite out. And I, I got to the end of my line. So it was at least 600 feet in the air. So it was just way up there. And you're, it's like, you're kind of fighting it with a fishing rod. And people are walking by like, wow, that's so awesome. What a great idea. And I'm just basking in the glory. Yes, this is such a great idea. My girls are like, yeah. Daddy, look at you, you're awesome. Can I hold it? No, it's expensive rod. <laughs> you may not fly the kite, not this one. I'll buy you a cheap one. So then I got tired of like flying this kite, but I kind of liked the glory of it all. So I saw these rocks. I went over there and I, I like wedged my, yeah, everyone's groaning. <laughs> you know where this is going. <laughs> so I put it, I wedged these rocks and I'm like, I'm watching it. And I'm like, hey, it's good. And it's still there. So I'm able to still get the glory. Hey, look at that, that's cool. And I'm still, and I'm able to play with my daughters all of a sudden this wind gust came and I could feel, I looked over and then it was like a salmon, like hit, it was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then it just went, I don't know how much monofilament stretches, but 200 yards of it stretches. And it pushed that rock up and my fishing rod shot probably 60 feet in the air. Just ching, I'm like, ah! And then I'm like running after it and it's kind of like gliding down and then it just hits this rock. Boom, I just see these pieces come off my rod. I'm like, ah! And then it flies up again. Ah, bam, more pieces. Now the same people are like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> That's so awesome for a whole different reason, <laughs> right? Because you can't control the wind. 
Sometimes it's awesome, wow, and then sometimes it's like smash, oh no, right? And that's, that's what's used. And it's not just a wind, it's a mighty rushing wind. A hurricane, which is wind. A class five hurricane in 10 minutes releases more energy than all of our nuclear weapons combined. Did you know that? It's like God looks at our nuclear weapons and is like, oh, those are so cute. Look at that little slingshot down there, cute. Watch a hurricane. Wind, wind, right? Jesus compares the spirit to wind. And when he compares the spirit to wind in John chapter three, he says, it goes where it wants. You're not controlling it. You're not gonna control this thing that's happening in the church. You're not gonna cage it up and be able to do what you want with it because it's God. Psalm 115 verse three says, God is in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. You don't control God. So that's the first metaphor, like a mighty rushing wind, like a 747 landing in that room, right? And it's this long history of this. You go to Ezekiel chapter three, there is a Ruach storm. Ruach in the Old Testament is the same word for spirit, wind, breath. There's a Ruach storm from God that happens to Ezekiel. And it's the same idea like power. There's power coming, right? So this, there's power coming. Then how about a fire? Right, what's a fire do? I love my wood stove this morning. Right, it warms you. There's great things fire does. I love the whole thing. The best thing I ever did in my life was put a wood stove in my home. Like a heat pump. How do you ever actually get warm with a heat pump? It blows out like 72 degree air. You're like, ah, oh, I'm kind of warm. When you got a wood stove, you come by that thing and it's like, you can't touch the back of your legs. You're like, ow, ow, ha, ah, you feel good. It's awesome. I love chopping wood. I love the whole thing. My kids don't love chopping wood, but I actually like that as well. We're chopping wood, come on. Dad, yeah, that's right, come on. I love the whole thing. But can fire get out of control? Just look at our summer, right? There's this great part to win. There's this great part to fire, but also there is a, there's a danger to them. They're not controllable. You're not gonna cage them. You're not gonna do what you want with them. And that's the two metaphors used. Interesting. And it says this about the fire when it comes, it's a really interesting word in the Greek. I'm not gonna bore you with it. But it, 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 if you have translation, some will say divided, spreading, right? Spreading tongues of fire. What it's saying is this, there was one source for the fire and it came in as fire and then the fire actually moved out and then rested on everybody's head. Very important, it's saying this, you all got the same thing. Peter didn't get some better fire than you. You all received the same fire. It spread from one single source. Every believer has the same DNA of God's spirit. It's spreading. It's way cool. And then I sometimes just look at verbs. It filled. They were all, verse four, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's very basic. What does filled mean? Why do you go to the gas station? Because you were empty. There was a void in your vehicle that you needed to remedy for you to keep going, right? So you had to fill that void. At its very core, 
If you just take that word filled, it means this. There is a void in you that must be filled. Right? There was something in humans that was empty and God's spirit came and that emptiness was gone. So I spoke two weeks ago how in the Genesis account of creation, God speaks and things become. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be a sun, let there be sun. Let there be stars, there's stars. God creates animals by speaking. Let there be a giraffe, let there be a three-toed yak sloth. Just let there be stuff. But what does he do with humans? He forms them out of the dirt, right? He makes a little dirt ball. Then what does he do with that dirt ball? He ruachs, breathes into it. Same word, that ruach. And it says, the dirt became a nefesh, a living soul. So prior to the filling of the ruach, what was there? A dirt ball. But then when it's filled, when the void of it is filled, it actually becomes a nefesh, a living soul, right? So without God's spirit, without God's spirit, we're just a dirt bag. That's all we are. It takes God's filling, that empty void in us, that, that's every human has it, until God's ruach, his spirit comes into that, we're, we're, we're dirt bags. That's all we are, okay? And the Bible teaches this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 just says, God has put eternity, a hole in our hearts. And then, then there's a really hard way to translate, like what does it say after that? But, but I believe it actually says, so that you'll search after God that we are created for him and, and by him and for him, right? And so the whole story of Ecclesiastes is this searching for how to fill that void without turning to God. That's really what Solomon tries to do, do right? He parties, he marries 700 women, has 300 concubines. He does all this stuff. And Ecclesiastes just pretty much says this. It says that, um, that, that if you look to people or circumstances to fill that void. When that void is not filled, who will you blame? People or your circumstances, right? I'm not happy because my wife won't. I'm not happy because my husband doesn't. I'm not happy because we don't live here. I'm not happy because my job isn't. I'm not, right? That's Ecclesiastes. Because God's put something in our heart that only his ruach can ever fill. And whenever you try to fill that with something else, you, you'll just end up blaming all the people around you or all the stuff around you and circumstances around you because you're looking to those things to fill a hole that they cannot. And then you become very angry, like Solomon. Solomon's a very angry man in Ecclesiastes. I hate my life, I hate my job, he's king. I'm like, dude, how could you hate your job? You're the king. People peel their grapes for you. I mean, come on. But why? Because he was trying to stuff into eternity something that could never do it, right? And Paul picks the same idea in Romans chapter eight, verse 20. He says that, that all creation has been subject to vanity, emptiness. And then it goes on, it explains that. But in verse 23, it says this, so that God's spirit could come and fill it. So really, that's what's happening right here. The filling, that base core word is this. There's a void in you that requires God's Spirit. And then the result of this, fire, rushing wind, filling is, they began to speak 
in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Well, that's simple, so let's just move on. <laughs> oh, I wish, wish it was simple. So I'll probably camp on this and try to explain a couple of things, um, but I will not answer everything. There's been a debate for a long time on what this means, and I'm not gonna solve it. I'm just gonna tell you where I land and uh, why I land there, okay? So first of all, what are tongues, right? And, and the big division, if you don't know, I'll try to back up here. The big division in the church is there are three major divisions and there's all kinds of strata in each of these three divisions. There are cessationists. And really, when you talk about tongues, it's not about tongues so much. The bigger idea is how does God work today? Does he do miracles? Are there healings? Should we pray for that? How does God work? So tongues is just, it's called the sign gift but healings is a sign gift, miracles is a sign gift, words of knowledge are a sign gift, words of wisdom are, like there's all these, they're just called sign gifts, the signs of the filling of God's spirit. So tongues is one of them, and it's the one that people debate about, but really, if you answer the tongue debate, then it tells you where you fit in each category, all right? So cessationists say this, no, those sign gifts were for the apostles. Jesus told the apostles, you'll do these signs. They did it, and now it's done. And we don't see these things happen anymore. So that's a cessationist. The middle is uh, now what's called a, a charismatic. A charismatic is like, no, I think they're still for today, but I'm not gonna get crazy. I wear a seatbelt, right? I'm not gonna roll down the aisle, I'm not gonna do that stuff. And then over here you have the Pentecostals. And the Pentecostals say, unless you speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. Right? And that's from the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. Google if you wanna know about, more about it. Fascinating history. So those are kind of your major three things. Uh, cessationist, no. Charismatic, yes, but. And then Pentecostals, give me it all. Let's go crazy, right? So um, first of all, you gotta answer like, what are tongues? What is this thing? And there's a lot of debate around the word used here is glossalia. And then the best thing that you can study when it comes to the Bible on tongues is 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. And the word there is glossa. So there's kind of like, well, are they the same? Are they different? And there's a lot of debate on that. I just say, when you look at all the Bible, it appears that there are two kinds of tongues. There are known tongues, and there are unknown tongues. So known tongues would be whatever, Farsi or Hindu or Bishlama or, and it would be all of a sudden you were given this ability to speak in that language that you did not know before. So it's a known tongue. An unknown tongue, Paul puts it like this, 1 Corinthians 13. Even if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, if I don't have love, it profits me nothing, right? So there appears to be angelic, unknown kind of languages. Like, does heaven have its own language? I haven't been there yet. I don't know. I'll tell you when I get there. Right now, I don't know, but it, there's something there. So there's known tongues, right, on one side, and then there's unknown tongues. That seems like what the Bible teaches. And then the other part of this is 
They always, when they are used, known or unknown, they'll do two things. Praise God or pray to God. That's it. There's no other use seen of tongues. So if you went to a meeting where tongues happened and there was an interpretation and the person interpreted by saying, thus saith Yahweh, I'm coming to earth and I'm gonna smash the evildoers. Nah, no, nope. it's praise to God for his wonderful works or praying to God. It's those two things, that's it, right? So to me, that's tongues. There's unknown tongues, language of angels, heaven, I don't know. Known tongues, someone would hear you and understand it. And then there are two directions those tongues will always go, praise to God or prayer to God, okay? So where do we sit at? Okay, so cessationists, here's what they say. All that stuff ceased with the death of the last apostle, probably the apostle John. And my question is always, show me in the Bible where the Bible says the sign gifts, all those, those sign gifts, where they end. Typically, the text that I'm given is 1 Corinthians 13.8 that says this. It says that there's coming a time when tongues will cease, prophecy will cease, and knowledge will cease. And they say, see right there. And my next question is, so is knowledge ceasing? Are we not to know anything anymore? Are we supposed to just, ah, well, no, not that one. The other two are supposed to go away. I say, you don't get it that way. It's all or nothing, right? And then it goes on to say um, that there's a trigger for it to happen when the perfect comes. So there's an idea that the perfect there represents the canon of scripture. But if you keep reading, Paul then says, hey, there's coming a time when I'll see face to face. And I'm waiting for that time to see face to face. Well, I don't think it's talking about a Bible there. What's the perfect that's gonna come that we will see face to face? I think it's Jesus. And most people agree with that. And, and you know, those that don't, I'm, I'm okay with it. All right, well, that's how I see it. I say the perfect that comes that we will see face to face is Jesus. And when Jesus comes, a lot of the stuff that I do, we don't need to do it anymore. I won't teach the Bible anymore, right? Because you'll know as you're known. You don't need that. I won't evangelize. I won't be walking around heaven saying, bro, do you know Jesus? Oh yeah, you do. Hey, bro, do you know Jesus? Oh, you do. Oh, bro, do you know Jesus? Yes, dude, knock it off, right? There's gonna be no need for that anymore. Hey, can I pray for a healing? I'm healed. Are you sure? I'd like to pray for you. No, right? There's gonna be a whole bunch of things in eternity that just aren't needed anymore. Why? Because we'll be finally where we're supposed to be, right? So yeah, it's all gonna cease when Jesus returns, Okay. So no doubt about it. The one thing that a cessationist says that I always have to think about is this. They say, well, I just don't see it happening anymore like in the book of Acts. And I would say, I 100% agree with you. Totally, I get that. And the worst part about it is the goofy imitations of what should be happening, right? Just watch uh, certain television channels. And you'll see the goofy stuff. You're like, oh, I can't believe that, right? It looks like the pastor's wife put makeup on with a paintball gun. You're like, what in the world is this? They make fun of us too, man. The frozen chosen, look at those guys. They're so stiff and old. And all right, you know, it's all good. And so they're, they're 
there's a point like, okay, why don't we see provable acts kind of stuff happening? And, and this is for a long time in my life, this was a huge wrestling match. So I told, told you how in college, I sat down with Bill from Campus Crusades for Christ. He's like, what do you want? I said, I want a book of Acts. He's like, well, we don't believe in that. So I started to pursue that in college. And if you remember back 1992-ish, there was this movement in America called the Laughter Revival. Remember that? Uh, Rodney Howard Brown, the Holy Ghost bartender. He was gonna get you drunk on the Holy Spirit. Okay, if you don't, good. You missed nothing, okay? But I'm in college at this time. And so I would be invited by my buddies that were doing that. Hey, come to this thing with me, go to this. And I'd be like, okay, fine. So I went to this one and you know, um, there they, they do praise and everything. And then some dude got him and was like, okay. He essentially said this, things are gonna get weird. <laughs> you know, to make it simple, things are gonna get weird. And then like someone starts busting up laughing and there's laughing and there's all this kind of stuff. And I'm just sitting there. Me and one other guy, we're like sitting there. And then they're like, they're, they're like, literally there's these groups of people on the ground laughing, laughing. And then they, they would be like, I got the laughter right here. And then they would throw it at somebody. And that guy would be like, ah! and they, this is what, they threw it at me and I just went. <laughs> like, oh, okay. And honestly, I had gone into that meeting saying, Jesus, I want more of you. If this is the route to more of you, then I am open to it. But if it's shenanigans, I want none of it, okay? So I went in with that kind of a heart. And so they're like, hey, well, we're gonna have this guy pray for you. I said, great, have him pray for me. So this pastor, I'd actually gone to his church um, a couple of times. He came over, he's, he starts praying for me. And he's like, you know, it's the whole like follow over thing. And then he started like pushing on my head. And I just went, mm-mm, <laughs> no, man. If this is legit, then it should happen. I shouldn't have to be pushed over. And then halfway through his prayer, he changed. He's like, Matt, I see in you a black box. Then unless you allow God into that black box, you will never have more of him. And honestly, that put something, a seed in me that was super unhealthy. And it's always made me leery of that kind of stuff. Like, really? Maybe I do have, maybe the problem is me. Maybe I'm a bonehead. Maybe I don't have enough faith. You know what? I can do that forever. Man, Satan can use that. He can just whip you into the ground. And Satan did do that and did whip me into the ground with it. It's me, I'm the problem, right? So I did, I tried, I was like, man, I want this, I want this, didn't happen. So then I got this book called Power Lines. And the whole book is testimony after testimony of people that I love and admire, greats of the faith. And what happened with them in their walk of faith, Jonathan Edwards, Blaise Pascal, I mean, brilliant people and how God's spirit came to them in different ways. And I'm like, man, I want that. And I literally, I went to a cabin for three days, locked myself in it and just waited and said, Jesus, I want you. I want your spirit. I read through the whole New Testament. I prayed and prayed and prayed and there was no Acts 2, verse four. I left, you know, knowing more of the Bible, having prayed well, but there was no like, oh, that was the moment. Yeah, okay, I'm transformed, awesome, right? So th there can be these abuses and the sensationists are right on that. Like we don't see acts happening in church today. Instead, what we see is this other thing that gets weird, right? Christians like, 
you know, icy hot and doing Christian calisthenics, like getting ready for service. You're like, what are you doing, man? I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I don't think that's how, how it happened in Acts chapter two. I don't think they were icy hotting up and stuff like that. I don't think they were stretching out. I don't think that's how it happened, right? Or there's some kind of pose, like you have to, you have to stand like this. You have to receive your hands out like you're open to Jesus. And, and, and I think all that stuff reminds me more of the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, where they're trying to get God's attention. Notice us, we're jumping around, notice us. And fire never falls. And Elijah just gets up, prays the shortest, simplest prayer, and fire falls. I think that's, to me, closer to the God that I know. He's not looking for jumping around crazy stuff. He's looking for simple people that trust his goodness and his generosity. Right, So I have wrestled with this thing. And I think it's very important to be careful. So if, if, if I just take 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, which is the text on sign gifts and tongues, if you just take that text and you read over the whole thing very thoroughly, here's what I think the entire thing is saying. Paul is saying, there's things you should do in public and there's things you should do in private. And if you do the things that you do in private, in public, it's weird. To me, that's the way you summarize that entire section. You ever see somebody do in public things that should only be done in private? It's awkward, right? Like you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. <laughs> so uh, I had jury selection duty, not this Tuesday, but the previous Tuesday. And they had three rooms for us. And it, the funnest part of that day for me was just watching people. I love to watch people. People are so interesting. There's so much interesting, more in, I don't care what app there is or video game or movie, people always beat all that stuff. Just watching people. So I'm in this room and there's chairs around the outside and then there's a table in the middle and I got in there and the table was all full. So I sit, sit on the outside and we had like probably 26 people in there. Like you're just kind of packed in this room. And then the last person that comes in is this lady. She's got this massive bag or like, Huh. Everyone's like watching her like, mm. and we're in there for about an hour. So she sits down and like, she's pulling out all kinds of stuff. She's got like a cutting board. She's like cutting tomatoes and stuff. I'm like, what in the world are you doing? <laughs> wow. Okay. You should do that in your kitchen. Not here. All right. So then she's done with that. And, and then she pulls out this sketch pad, not, not like a regular sketch pad. It was like two feet by like 18 inches. It's like, boom. And she's got her sketch pad and she's on the outside. She doesn't have the table. So she starts like doing something and we're all just kind of, I'm all right. And uh, this lady comes in to check on us. Hey, how are you guys doing? Everyone good? She's like, I have a question. And we're like, okay, what is it? Like, can you cook your food somewhere? What are you gonna ask? She's like, um, can I sketch the judge when I go in there? And the lady, she's like, uh, what? <laughs> can, can I sketch the judge? She's like, I'll, I'll ask the judge. Thank you, thank you. We're like, okay. And then she's doing more stuff. Now she's like, I, can, can I use the table? And like the table's full of people. So they're like, um, well, and she's already up with her sketch pad, like boom, right in the middle. Of the, people are like spreading out, getting out of her way. And then she's drawing these circles with a compass. You know that? No, protractor, protractor. She's, and, and normally, normal people, they use a protractor. They move the protractor around, right? Oh, not her. 
She held the protractor still, and with her big two feet, by 18, she's like whipping it around people like, whoa, hey, wow, whoa. I was like, dude, this is insane. <laughs> and then she's like doing like all these circles on this piece of paper, and every time it's though, I was just like, wow, wow. I was so glad to be over in the corner. I'm like, wow, this is so great. So she's just, you know, and then she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm thinking, you figured out you should turn the protractor. Now she's like, you're wondering what I'm doing. Okay. She's like, I'm drawing a symbol from the Kabbalah. I'm like, I don't think it's called Kabbalah, but anyways, it's also found in crop circles in Central America. We're like, oh boy. Literally 30 seconds later, that lady comes in. Um, ma'am, can you come with us? We're like, they got a camera in here, don't they? This is jury selection. They're like, she's out. Get her out of here. We couldn't, we were cracking up so much. We're like looking at where's the camera? <laughs> they found her. <laughs> it was hilarious. There are things you do in private that you just don't do in public. And I think what can happen, it was so good, man. What can happen is people will be like, oh, this draws me so close to Jesus. Yes, but it drives everybody else away. And Paul would say this, if my eating meat causes somebody else to be pushed away from Jesus, I'll never eat meat again. And that's why in the center of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is this chapter called the chapter on love. Because that's the center. Is this the most loving thing to do? And I think sometimes people get their pet thing, crop circles, whatever it is, and they don't care. They're gonna force it on people. And I don't think it's loving. I think it's always, we come back to, what is the most loving thing for me to be doing, right? So the cessationists have a point. I don't think biblically they do, and I'll talk about that in a second, but they have a point like, okay, there's been some abuses and we don't see acts working out in the church today. And I wrote a paper in seminary that kind of got me in a little bit of like, hmm. And I I like that, I'm, I'm always game for that. And this is what I wrote in my paper. It was about the spirit. And I said this, I said, I think if you ask the average believer, I said, I'll include myself in this. If we were talking about how does God's spirit work in your life? I think the average person, I'm an average Christian. I'll put myself right in this camp. And I put that on that paper. This is how I would say it works. It's like putting octane boost in my 1997 F250 truck. I think it helped, but I'm not quite sure. I think that's the way most people look at the power of God's spirit. I think I'm powered by God's spirit, but I'm not, is that me? Or is that God's spirit? Was that just better diesel? Or was that the octane boost? I say most people would fit in that category. Or maybe a different one, a vitamin supplement. I think I have more energy, but I don't know. I think I'm sleeping better, but I don't know. I don't think I'm going to the bathroom as often at night, but I don't know, right? It's all that kind of like, oh, I, right? I think if you're really honest, and I think that was too honest in my paper, like, like, I honestly think that's how most people think about God's spirit. I think it's helping me, but I don't know. So we might mentally believe Jesus and his spirit work a certain way, but functionally, it's like octane boost. Yeah, but I don't know right? That's what I think. So 
tons of debate. Um, I have one incident in my life where I can say, absolutely, God met me. It was on a bike trip that my brother, myself, my best friend, Neil took. Went out to Livingston, Montana, and we proceeded to ride our bikes back to Grants Pass. Long story, I'll shorten it. We're in Salmon, Idaho. It's a long bike ride too. We're in Salmon, Idaho, along the Salmon River. Beautiful spot, great things happen right there. Um, it was there that I rededicated my life to Jesus. And it was nighttime and we're sitting there, some really radical things that happened during that day. Uh, Neil opened this Bible that had been given to us by our parents, these little desert storm New Testaments. They're like, please take these. They knew that we were not in a good spot. So they're like, okay, fine. He opened it to Romans chapter one and he read verse 19. Listen to this. We had not been living well. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. I'm like, that's me. And God has made plain his truth to me. And yet I have been living in a way so contrary, suppressing who he is. And it was just conviction and repentance. And here's what happened. It was like a weight fell on me. It's the only way I can explain it. It was like a weight, just boom, I fell to my knees. And then literally my face hit the dirt and I started bawling, crying. And I'm not a big crier. Not, if you know me well, I'm not very emotional. I'm very hyper, like voice wise, but I'm very even keel, pretty much. Uh, if that makes sense. It totally does not make sense. But if you know me, it does make sense. Uh, but I just started bawling. But it was, the, it was, it was like, a cry that was incredible because it was like something was pushing from my belly and I could just feel it surging up through my whole body and it was pressing out my eyes, all my sin, all my wickedness, all my evil, all my depravity, all my grossness. And I sobbed for five minutes straight, just uncontrollably sobbing, just cleansed. Here's what's crazy. The same moment that weight fell on me and I hit my face in the dirt, it happened to my older brother. It was, it was, it was like, it was like, what is it? Synchronous swimming? It was like that. If there was synchronous crying in the Olympics, we would have got a gold. Cause it was like, boom, we're on our face. Same time, sobbing at the same time. It was over at the same time. We both like got up like, whoa. I felt so clean. I felt so forgiven. I felt God's grace. I felt his mercy. I felt his love. It was, it's like, I've never, it was 1992. I've never experienced anything like it since. Before that, since. It's the one time I can say something wild happened. And, and man, I, I wish that on every person. Like when I was done crying, I knew I was a child of Jesus. I just knew it. And even when there was periods in my life where I went up and down, I would always go back to that time. no. No, it's real. No, it's real. I remember being on my face. I remember that. So where do we land? We are probably middle charismatic. Yes, but, and here's why. Um, it's biblical for me. 
If you look at the Bible, not just book of Acts, God always does miracles. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, from creation to new creation, God's always doing miracles. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Joshua, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah. You just go on. God is always Paul, Peter, Apollos, right? Philip, his daughters, you know, on and on and on. God's always doing his work in supernatural ways. So for me, it's not a question of, well, write this narrow little thing of apostles. It's no, God has always done miracles. He's always worked this way. And I expect him to keep working. It's normative to me. And there are times, two times in the Bible where you see that God doesn't work. Numbers 13 and 14, where God wants his people to go into the promised land and take the land. And they send in 12 spies and 10 spies come back with an evil report. And they discourage 2 million people from believing in God and set them on a 40 year death march in the desert. Brutal. And that group of people, had they seen God do great things? And 10 plagues, parting the Red Sea. Every morning they wake up, what's out in front of their tent? Denny's Grand Slam breakfast, right? Hey, awesome, thanks, right? So they know God's power. What happened to them? Well, you know, God worked that way in Egypt, but I don't know if he works that way here. God worked that way back then, but I'm not sure if he's working that way today. You gotta be careful of that fear and overthinking things, right? And then the same thing with Jesus. It's Matthew 13. Jesus preaches what I think is one of the most brilliant messages in the Bible. They're called kingdom parables. You wanna know about the kingdom? Read Matthew 13. At the end of it, Right? He's ready to do miracles and heal people. And then what happens? It says he can do no mighty work in Nazareth because of their unbelief. Why didn't they believe in Jesus? Oh, we know Jesus. He's the son of Mary. Who does he think he is now? Big shot, saying all those words. Nah, nah, I know him. Saw him running around as a kid. Nah, didn't believe him. And so Jesus did no mighty work there because of unbelief. I think that God deals with unbelief very different than we do. So if someone doubts me, no way you could swim across this river. Oh yeah? Okay, right? I'll go drown myself, get sent to the ER proving it. That's not God because God's not insecure like you and me. So when we don't believe in God, God's like, okay, fine. All right, I won't do it then. I'm not, I'm not challenged by your belief. I'm not insecure. If you don't believe I can do it, fine. I'm not going to do it, all right? So um, the, the way I explained it to one guy was this. I was like, so SUVs, like 90% of them never go on, never are put in four-wheel drive. Do you know that? 90% of SUV, SUVs never go in four-wheel drive. People never use it. Now it could be because they're afraid of off-roading or they don't need off-roading, Right? But that doesn't change it. It doesn't stop being an SUV. It doesn't stop being a four-wheel drive. It's not, well, because I never used it. It's not a four-wheel drive. No, you just never used it or you didn't need it. So I think sometimes it's the same thing about what God's doing right now. Like maybe we don't need it. Maybe we're not desperate for it. I don't know, man. There's, there, it's like the wind is like fire. I'm not gonna control this thing. I don't know. But sometimes like that, okay? And on this side, the, the Pentecostal side, I'll say this about them. I 
I love the fact that they expect God to work. I don't agree with their methods and I don't agree with their theology. And I can be like, a lot of stuff. I'm like, you're just giving us a bad reputation. Why are you doing that? But the good part of them is, man, God works. Man, God does great things, right? And the way that they praise Jesus to me is phenomenal. Like they believe the King has come and they sing, like it shames me how they sing and how they praise God. And you know, there's so much power in that. Like I was convicted of this hugely a couple of years ago. We were coming back from Portland. There was this, we're right outside of Portland. There's this gal on the side of Interstate 5. She's young. Uh, my wife's like, we should pick her up. I'm like, okay, fine. We pick her up. We get her in the car. We uh, uh, realized really quickly she didn't believe in showering and it was really hot like June day. We're like, oh my goodness, roll down the window. <laughs> and she's like in, in fishnet stockings and cutoffs that were cut off too much. And like, you know, she's just an interesting gal. Her name is Erin. She's got like this banjo. And so we just start driving and it's gonna be five hours and okay. So my kids are like, wow, who are you? You know, they start asking her questions. It was really cool seeing that. And they're like, are you in a band? Like, she's like, yeah, I'm in a band. What's the name of your band? The Dirty Delinquent Children. I'm like, oh, okay, all right. And Elijah's like, can you sing us a song? I'm like, oh no. It will not be the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me, will it? <laughs> so she busts out her banjo and she's like, it was really a great song. I'm like, oh, okay. All right, so we get home super late. So she just stays in the motorhome. Next morning, we gave her a ride where she needed to go. And uh, uh, I, I, I talked to her about Jesus because that's who I talk about. And she's like, you know, I used to go to church. I went to this vineyard church. She said the sermons were horrible, but she said the praise. She goes, I felt God's presence in praise. I felt God's presence in praise. So here's this gal that, you know, her antenna is maybe not the best, but something happened when people praised. Like I really am convicted by this group of people, right? Now they miss things and they, I think, absolutely. But man, convicts me. I wanna see God do great things. I wanna see him do them biblically, totally, but I wanna see him do great things. So the point, and I'm running out of time now on four verses, this is insane. The point of this, I think that gets lost is we get so stuck in tongues, the gift is not tongues. What's the gift? God's spirit, right? That's the gift that we don't have to go to a holy place anymore we become the holy place. We become the very temple of God. So here, I'll give you three things really quick and I'm done. Here's how, is it octane boost? Is it vitamin supplement? I can't really figure out what God's doing. Is it his spirit? Is it not? Here are three things that I use to measure how God's at work in my spirit, or in my life. Number one, number one is, am I becoming more like Christ? 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we keep our eyes on him, Jesus, we are transformed in the same image by the spirit. That spirit's work in me ultimately is to make me like Jesus, right? Romans 8, 29, that we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. So that's number one. So if I'm evaluating God's spirit at work in my life, that's number one. Number two is, is my life, demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Do I love people? Am I full of joy? Do I have peace? 
I'm a long-suffering. Am I meek? Am I tender? Right? Am I? I'll have his fruit. That's what will happen in my life. And sometimes I think on these two edges, the very fringes, there's so much controversy. It's like, man, I don't see much fruit in the way that we talk to each other. Right? It's great to kid each other. And I have, I have really Pentecostal friends and I have super cessationist friends. And I love to have a good debate with them. I love to laugh and kid and poke each other. And we can do that. It's so fun. It's totally fun. And sometimes I learn something. And hopefully they do too. That's great. I should be demonstrating the fruit of God's spirit. And then thirdly, here's the big one for me. Am I increasing in the gift I've been given? I've been given a gift, teaching the Bible. Am I increasing in that gift? So Timothy is told, stir up the gift that was given to you by the laying on of hands. Don't be trying to run after all these other gifts. What's the gift God has given you? Are you increasing in that gift? I may never heal somebody. I may never speak in tongues. I may never do a miracle. And what the enemy likes to do with that is this, look at you. You don't have that good of a gift. Look what they're doing over there. He gives you and me this either low self-esteem by that or envy of their gift. Instead of being like, no, I've been given this gift and I'm gonna stir up that gift. I'm gonna get better at that gift. And I know this, if I am faithful in what is the least, more will be given to me. So my job is to stir up that gift and to use that for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I know that God uses things I say in ways I can't imagine. It's almost every week someone will say to me after a service, how did you know? How did you know? I was just thinking about it. How did you know? My wife and I were talking that. How did you know? Uh, and like, oh, your, your wife told me, yeah. <laughs> she told me you need to hear this, so I just wanna hammer you. No, I just, no. It's, I think very often, God's spirit moves through the teaching of his word prophetically. And I don't mean like future telling, but edification, exhortation, comfort. First uh, Corinthians 14 too. And I, hey, awesome, good, praise God. So to me, that's how I measure it. I don't measure it now by, hey, hey, do I have this radical thing happening in me? No, am I becoming more like Jesus? Do I have the fruit of God's spirit? And the gift I know I have Am I stirring that up and using that to its full potential? That to me is the measure. And I continue to say, Jesus, I wanna be open to the real, reality, the real movement of your spirit. And I wanna be testing any other spirit that comes. I think that's biblical. So went a little bit long. I will go faster next time. Jesus, I thank you for the diversity of this body. I pray that we would be those that realize not everybody's supposed to be an eye or a hand or a mouth or a foot, that, that you give different gifts to different people and you move by your spirit differently through different people and we should be okay with that. Not everybody's supposed to ball for five minutes. That was me and it was good and it was right for me. May we not try to make a formula out of the book of Acts, but may we be being formed by the book of Acts into a people usable for you. And I pray this in your name, amen.